from New Jersey to Wyoming, Nevada to South Carolina, this is American Radio Journal. On this edition, inflation continues to eat away at family budgets. E.J. Antoni of the Heritage Foundation is here to explain why inflation is so high and to discuss the impact. Joe Biden and Mitch McConnell came together this past week to celebrate the so-called infrastructure bill. Scott Parkinson from the Club for Growth has the real story. The backlog in granting immigration visas is making it unfairly difficult for people to immigrate into the United States the right way. Eric Bame of Reason Magazine gets details from David Beer of the Cato Institute. And Colin Hanna of Let Freedom Ring USA talks about Tim Gagline's new book, Toward a More Perfect Union, on this week's American Radio Journal Commentary. I'm Loman Henry, and welcome to American Radio Journal. The cost of food, housing, gas, actually the cost of just about everything, is rising rapidly as inflation continues to ripple through the economy. E.J. Antoni is a research fellow for regional economics in the Center for Data Analysis at the Heritage Foundation. He is here to discuss the impact. E.J., welcome back to American Radio Journal. E.J., we get these monthly inflation figures, and we all know over the last year or so, inflation has been running at about a 40-year high, over 7%. What is included in that number, and how is it determined? That's a great question. You know, inflation is actually surprisingly difficult to measure in the short run. In the long run, what happens is all of these prices tend to go up or down by the same amount. But in the short run, we have a lot of different factors at play here, and they will cause some items to go up much faster than others. And then the question is, okay, how much is that actually impacting somebody's budget. For example, if housing goes up by 10%, but the price of eggs also go up by 10%, we would want the impact of housing to be much larger because it occupies a much larger portion of a person's budget. And so one of the ways that we try to measure inflation is with something called the Consumer Price Index, or CPI. And what CPI does is it looks at what people purchased a year or two years ago, and it tries to come up with how much it would cost to purchase those same things today. And the difference in those prices is the inflation rate. Looking at this inflation rate, one of the items that we all have to buy, and you touched on it when you talked about the price of eggs, we all have to buy food. And the inflation rate with food has been particularly high. Can you give us a look back at 2022 and what was the trend line with food prices throughout that year? Not good, unfortunately. And it it really is bad when you start looking at specific food items. What I mean by that is although food is up 14, 16%, again, on average, when you look at all these different items, the problem is that for many people with lower incomes, who disproportionately rely on cheaper sources of food, things like eggs, right? That's a relatively cheap source of protein. The problem is people in the middle class who can't afford the things they used to buy are now shifting to cheaper alternatives. So instead of buying filet once a week, maybe I'm just going to stick to ground beef instead, right? I'm gonna, Again, I'm going to buy more eggs. And so now not only are those prices rising because of inflation along with everything else, but there's an increase in demand 
for those items, which is further driving those prices up. And so the poor are getting particularly squeezed. I mean, in many parts of the country, the price of eggs doubled last year. That is scary for people's uh, household budgets. Folks are spending a bigger part of their budget on food items. EJ, what impact does this then have on those goods that we might buy with so-called disposable income if we have dramatically less of that? Does that then also create an, an economic situation where we have a bit of a downturn in the market for those types of goods and services? That's exactly right. We've already seen that a little bit for certain items, and we can expect to see more of it in 2023. And the reason for that, as you said, is because as people are shifting demand away from those items towards cheaper alternatives, demand is falling off. Producers can't sustain the same level of output. Uh, We just saw a couple of recent manufacturing reports that show that new orders are just absolutely collapsing. They're falling off a cliff. They're, They're dropping at the fastest rate since May of 2020 when we had these mandatory shutdowns. People couldn't go to work and people couldn't buy things. So the economy by no means is out of the woods. Instead, we're now worrying about a double-dip recession. The Federal Reserve, of course, EJ, has been raising interest rates very aggressively in 2022, almost historically so. You did touch on housing. What has this done to the housing market? Because we had a situation where the price of housing had really skyrocketed. If you were a seller, that was great news. But now, all of a sudden, has that housing market cooled? Uh, The housing market is cooling, and we can expect it to continue to cool. The reason for that is because when when I go to purchase a home, I'm actually not concerned with the price of the home. That, That may sound weird, but hear me out. What I'm really concerned about, since I'm not paying for the home in one lump sum with cash, I'm paying with a mortgage, I'm concerned what is my monthly payment. And the home price is only one of the factors that determine my monthly payment. The other big factor is the interest rate. And because rates were so low and are now getting back to normal levels, but actually still aren't even at normal levels yet, but they have gone up considerably, the difference there in that interest rate has caused the monthly payment on a median-priced home to go up by about 80%. So not quite double, but it's getting close. And as rates continue to climb, that monthly payment is going to continue to climb, even though you're buying the exact same house in the same location. Adding all of these things together, EJ, as, as you mentioned, we may be headed for a, a recession here. The Federal Reserve, of course, is trying to, it's deliberately attempting to cool off the economy in order to bring inflation under control. I know you don't sit there with a crystal ball, but as we look ahead over the next six to 12 months, is it even possible for the Fed to bring us to a soft landing or is the situation such that there's going to be a lot of economic pain in all of this? It's not possible for the Fed to bring us to a soft landing, but that's largely because of what's going on in Congress and at the White House. And the reason I say that is because the Federal Reserve is basically responding to what Congress and the president do. So when Congress and the president spent trillions of dollars we didn't have during the last couple of years, what happened? The Federal Reserve jumped in to pay for it all, and they created the money out of nothing. And that caused this inflation. And now to reel that inflation back in, they have to reel in the amount of money that they created. Well, as Congress and the president continue spending money we don't have, that is causing a scarcity of loanable funds or or savings, right? What's available to be lent to both the government and businesses and consumers. So now, because of that increased scarcity, 
the Federal Reserve needs to continue hiking rates because if they don't, it will allow the inflation to continue. So what's interesting is that if the Congress and the president were to stop borrowing all of this money, the Federal Reserve would not need to hike rates so hard and so fast. But as long as the spending and borrowing continues, rates are going to have to march higher. E.J. Antoni is a research fellow for regional economics in the Center for Data Analysis, that at the Heritage Foundation. E.J., tell us a bit about the Heritage Foundation. Also, you've written extensively on all of these topics that we've discussed today. Where can folks find that on the Internet? Uh, Well, folks can find me at heritage.org. They can also find me at Twitter, at Real E.J. Antoni. As far as the Heritage Organization, we are a nonprofit. We seek to educate lawmakers and citizens alike about public policy issues and how best to move the country forward and preserve American liberty. E.J. Antoni with the Heritage Foundation. E.J., thank you for being back with us. Thank you for having me. Scott Parkinson, of course, at the Club for Growth, a new year underway, both in Washington, D.C. and all around the country, and he is keeping an eye on events in all of those areas. For us, Scott, good to talk to you today. Thanks for having me back, Loman. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. And it appears that Joe Biden and Mitch McConnell had a Happy New Year celebrating the latest Washington big spending boondoggle out in Cincinnati. Want to frame for us what the event was and what it is the two of them were promoting? This week, President Biden and the Republican Senate leader, Mitch McConnell, who should not be confused with the majority leader because he's a minority leader. We've never won back that Senate. They had a joint appearance at a bridge in Covington, Kentucky, that connects that area along with Cincinnati. And they were really trying to boost up the the so-called bipartisan infrastructure package that became law a little bit over a year ago. And so when you when you kind of look at this bipartisan display, Mitch McConnell and, and the way that he's been a part of the Uniparty, a career politician, somebody that doesn't really uh, have much of a investment in the future in terms of the next 50 years, but is instead more concerned about delivering these outrageous deals for his state and his area in the near term. That's honestly what was on display in my view. And Joe Biden and, and Mitch McConnell have, have been creatures of Washington, career politicians for 40 years. And this week they got together while we're trying to bring in a, a new House majority and the other side of Capitol Hill, and you know these two were joined by a couple other senators, Sherrod Brown and former Senator Rob Portman, and Kentucky and Ohio's governors were there, and you know they're trying to really highlight this tens of billions of dollars to fix and replace so-called aging bridges, and so that's really what this this bipartisan event was about. That infrastructure bill, to remind our audience, Scott, included a lot of things that had nothing to do with infrastructure, correct? Yeah, I mean, this really only included, like I said, $27 billion over five years to to address bridges, but it was a, a trillion-dollar spending package. And if you think about it, it's really a bridge to inflation. And inflation's not going anywhere either. The omnibus that we just had in December waives all the budgetary discipline related to the Biden stimulus package, and that basically is adding to our debt and deficit issue. It's printing money. And when you increase the supply of money, uh, that is a big indicator of, of what causes 
prices to increase. Meanwhile, let's go south of Washington, very far south, to the state of Florida. One of the bright spots for Republicans, Scott, in the election last November was the re-election of Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida. And he, he really redefined the whole uh, electoral coalition for Republicans, picking up heavily Democrat areas. He was sworn in for a second term as governor. You, as a former chief of staff to the governor, were there. What did the governor have to say on the occasion of his second inaugural? Well, we don't have enough time to go through the whole speech. I wish we did, right, with our segment here. But I honestly thought that uh, Governor DeSantis's inaugural speech was one of the best he's ever given. He highlighted the various successes that they had within the first four years of him being the governor of, of the free state of Florida, contrasting his his vision for that state with a lot of the lockdown governors that pretty much put their tail between their legs and and created all this suffering through uh, a dire economy. And DeSantis has been a champion for school freedom. He's been a champion fighting back against wokeism and cultural Marxism in Florida and parental rights. I think that's going to be another big theme for him in the next legislative session that will convene uh, in, a, in just a couple of months in March. So he's got a lot of big things to do in front of him, and I think that during his speech he highlighted really what his vision for Florida is over the next four years and how that that can also relate into working with other governors to replicate a lot of his success and extend it to other red states. I was very impressed, Scott. Florida, of course, was hit by two major hurricanes this past hurricane season. Uh, I think really the only hurricanes to hit the continental United States. In the aftermath of that, Scott, we have heard nothing. And I take that as a good thing because usually when there's one of these hurricanes afterward, you hear about all sorts of problems, lack of supplies, corruption, etc., that we haven't heard anything, does that speak to not only the ability of Governor DeSantis to work on these big issues, but also his ability to make all the trains run on time as an administrator? Well, look, I think that it's a key difference between those that have strong executive experience and leadership capabilities. Nobody doubts his leadership abilities in getting problems solved. We saw a bunch of big bridges get wiped out, and, and some of them were temporarily fixed so that they could be crossed into areas that that were devastated by Hurricane Ian within just a few days. And, you know, obviously, at the federal level, you have a lot of bureaucracies that stand in your way. But when you're the chief executive of a state that really is about the the 17th largest economy in the world, uh, if you take into consideration how much of an economic impact Florida has uh, comparatively, you know, I think it, it, it is demonstrative of his ability to get stuff done. And legislatively, he's done a lot, but he's also worked with other strong leaders from the emergency department down there and, and with the environmental groups to bypass any of the roadblocks that would necessarily slow him down from doing what's best for the, for the people in, in his state. Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth. There's a lot of activity in Washington this week and will be over the next couple weeks as Republicans take control of the House of Representatives. We will keep track of all of that with Scott Parkinson. Scott, tell us a bit about the Club for Growth. Club for Growth is based out of Washington, D.C. We're united in this idea of economic freedom. If anybody wants to check us out on our website and actually sign up to become a member for free, 
The website is clubforgrowth.org. Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth. Scott, thank you again for being here. Okay, thank you. There is a substantial backlog in the granting of immigration visas, and that is making it unfairly difficult for those seeking to legally immigrate into the United States. Eric Baim of Reason Magazine learns more from David Beer of the Cato Institute. Legal immigrants and their American sponsors are waiting longer than ever to get even the most basic response from the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services thanks to a massive backlog in handling visas and other paperwork at the agency. And uh, this is a problem. It makes it harder for people to come into the United States legally, which, of course, only increases the pressure on the illegal immigration system. Hi, folks. I'm Eric Bain with Reason Magazine. Thanks for joining us on this edition of American Radio Journal, and Happy New Year to you. My guest today is David Beer. He's the Associate Director for Immigration Studies over at the Cato Institute, and he joins us now to talk about this just massive backlog in processing paperwork in the U.S. immigration system and the implications of it. David, thank you for taking some time with us today. Thanks for having me. People who are trying to come into the United States legally, the people who are standing in line wanting to do this the right way, they are now waiting longer than ever to get responses to their visa applications. That's what you wrote in uh, this blog post uh, earlier this week at the the Cato blog, Cato.org. Tell us a little bit about how this backlog is uh, looking right now. This is U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, the major agency in charge of the immigration process. And they're looking at wait times that have just ballooned over the last decade. And, and really, COVID was kind of the last big push, but this is a, a decade-long process in the making of, of just creating this crisis within the immigration system. There are many different types of application forms. There's employment authorization document forms. There's a form for petitioning for your relative to come over to the United States. A lot of different types of forms. U.S. Citizenship and Immigration adjudicators, for 82% of the different types of applications, they're doing worse than they were in the past. And so much worse that it will take the agency more than 3.3 million additional man hours to process the people in the backlog. I think that's an important point. I want to just kind of underline that for a second here is that it's it's not you said earlier that it takes, you know, between what used to take 4 months now it takes a year to process these forms, but it's not as if there's there's not a single form. It's not like you fill out one piece of paper, "Hello, I would like to come to the United States," and then you get to come in when, once that's processed. I mean, it's every step in this process and there are many steps are taking longer. That's right. Yeah, so the first step of the process to sponsor a worker to come over as an employer, first you have to go to the Department of Labor, and that's a completely different agency, but that's taking extremely long. That'll take you a year and a half to go through that process to get the Department of Labor to sign off, saying that there's no U.S. worker who wants the job. And then you go to the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, and you file a petition with them saying, Department of Labor signed off. I want to bring this worker over. Can I do that? And that'll take you anywhere from a year to two years, depending on the type of worker. And then you, you know, the worker actually has to get the visa or green card to start the job. And so it's an extremely arduous process, multiple steps going through. And every one of those, any, any delay in that is a huge obstacle to 
getting people to come legally to the country. We're talking with David Beer. He's the Associate Director of Immigration Studies at the Cato Institute, talking about this uh, backlog in the uh, processing times for visas and other forms of immigration paperwork. Again, David, these are the people who are doing this the right way. They're the people who are standing in line trying to come into the country legally, and yet uh, we are putting them through the ringer to do it. I think we want to finish on this point, which is a point you made in your blog post yesterday, right at the bottom of it is that this is a problem that goes back. I mean, it's easy maybe to blame the Trump administration for some of the uh, immigration changes that they made, but this is a problem that goes back 20 years or more and really, it's a it's a basic problem uh, with all parts of the federal bureaucracy, which is that like there's just more paperwork and more forms and more requirements than ever before. Uh, there's so much red tape here. Tell us a little bit about that. Right. So the agency started in 2003 as part of the Department of Homeland Security. There was, of course, the Immigration and Naturalization Service before that. But the, when the agency started in 2003, all of its forms put together constituted less than 200 pages. And now in 2023, we're talking about more than 700 pages worth of forms. The average length of a form is now about 10 pages compared to about three pages back in 2003. So there's just been a continuous expansion in data collection and the number of questions that are being asked. There's like three different questions about how, whether you're a prostitute on the green card application form. Like who is being denied based on this? Even if you were a prostitute, are you going to say that on the form? <laughs> it's, just, it's just insane. But the thing is, it takes nine minutes to process a, an application for, to renew your green card nine minutes, but it takes a year for someone to look at that application. So every minute that you add is a minute that will extend the processing times for everyone, maybe another month. And so that is a, that's the, the fundamental problem is anytime you add bureaucratic obstacles, you're creating a much greater problem for everyone. Yeah, I know immigration reform is one of those things that's uh, probably never going to actually happen in any meaningful way. But this this seems like one area where both sides should be able to come together and agree like this is this is just wrong. These are the people who are trying to do this correctly. And the federal bureaucracy, which conservatives understand the problems with that in so many other aspects of the government. That's those same problems exist in the immigration system, too. Uh, We're unfortunately out of time for today. David, uh, thanks for taking some time with us. Of course, anytime. And again, that's David Beer. He's the Associate Director of Immigration Studies at the Cato Institute. Check out his work, including this fine, very detailed uh, post about the uh, these backlogs in the immigration system at Cato.org. For Reason Magazine, I'm Eric Bame. Catch me right back here next week on another edition of American Radio Journal. The title is Toward a More Perfect Union, and Colin Hanna of Let Freedom Ring USA says Tim Gegline's new book is a must-read on this American Radio Journal Commentary. It has been my great pleasure and honor to have known Tim Gagline for more than 20 years. He was Deputy Director of the White House Office of Public Liaison, President George Bush's administration, when I first met him. After leaving the White House, he briefly worked for my organization, Let Freedom Ring, and for the last 14 years, he has been the Washington-based Vice President of External and Government Relations for the Christian organization Focus on the Family. 
Tim has just written his third book called Toward a More Perfect Union. It will be released next Wednesday, January 11th, and I want to urge all listeners to American Radio Journal to go to your favorite bookseller and enter a pre-release order. Tim kindly gave me a pre-publication PDF, and I'm going to whet your appetite by reading a few passages from it. Instead of a book review, I'm calling this program a book promotion. If you love America and are concerned about the absence of true leadership and patriotism in our nation's capital, this book is for you. Unlike so many books today that critique our culture but stop short of suggesting a solution to the problems they cite, this book by Tim Gagline both identifies problems and offers solutions, and he does so with extensive citations of research in endnotes. The factual presentation is so well documented as to be unassailable. Here's an example. In the first chapter, Tim writes, We have forgotten our principles while exalting our privileges. But without principles to serve as a foundation, we will eventually lose our privileges. We had a perfect example of how this played out in the summer of 2020. After police confrontations in various cities left several blacks dead, radical left-wing mobs seized upon the tragedies to riot, destroying small businesses, vandalizing stores and public streets, and burning police vehicles. They also continued an ongoing campaign of vandalizing or toppling historic statues and monuments. On a more frightening scale, the woke left exerted immense pressure against these historical symbols, forcing public officials to remove them and erase the memories of those who founded America or played important roles in our history. This mob warfare against our past has gone far beyond the symbols of the old Confederacy to include those who stood against injustice, such as Ulysses S. Grant, Francis Scott Key, Theodore Roosevelt, and Winston Churchill. Americans of color continue to struggle to receive equal opportunities in many ways, and many of these struggles are tied to the breakdown of the family caused by government policies that have harmed rather than helped their ability to rise from poverty. I see this as a deep problem and one all Americans must work together to resolve. No one should feel as if he or she is less significant or less valuable because of the color of his or her skin, yet indiscriminately destroying our history will not bring justice to our future. Well, if you resonate with what I just read, you will embrace this book. But Tim doesn't stop there. He goes on, We cannot stand idly by watching our nation and what it represents collapse from within through the destruction of our history and heritage. We must fight for unity. That is the only way we can stand. To do this will require a proactive approach rather than a reactive one, and it must start in our homes. Those who seek to erase our history and heritage often advance their agenda through state and federal programs, while many Americans are totally unaware this is happening. Too many parents still trust their public schools to teach history adequately and accurately. If our children are in public schools, we must have regular, intentional conversations with them about the true story of America's founders and founding principles, and how these principles have led to greater freedoms and respect for human dignity. These conversations can happen around the dinner table, on family road trips, or when you're out running errands, but they must happen, and they must happen 
frequently. Tim goes on to cite sources of sound history for all ages and even proposes a classical curriculum for home schools, charter schools, and independent schools. In short, toward a more perfect union is both the diagnosis and the cure that America needs in the current cultural and educational pandemic, a pandemic that is every bit as dangerous as a raging disease like COVID. You need Tim Gagline's Toward a More Perfect Union. This has been Colin Hanna of Let Freedom Ring for American Radio Journal. American Radio Journal is heard on public affairs-minded radio stations all across the country, including WZZU-FM and WKHF-FM in Lynchburg, Virginia, along with WANB-FM in Waynesburg, Pennsylvania. American Radio Journal is produced weekly by the Lincoln Institute of Public Opinion Research, Incorporated. The Lincoln Institute is completely funded through the generosity of individuals, corporations, and philanthropic foundations, which underwrite the costs of this program. Comments and opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Lincoln Institute or of this radio station. Learn more about American Radio Journal and hear expanded versions of some interviews aired on this program, please visit our website, AmericanRadioJournal.com. I'm Loman Henry. Thank you for listening to American Radio Journal. American Radio Journal, lighting the brush fires of freedom. Freedom.